chapter 1 this morning, and we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Acts. Uh, we will carry this out probably until December. We're going to get through about the first third of the book of Acts. So uh, if you are looking for somewhere to study in your Bibles over the next few months, and you're thinking, where, where should I read? We'll turn to the book of Acts and start reading through this, these stories that we find in Acts. So we're starting in Acts chapter 1 today, and I'll tell you from the beginning, um, the book of Acts, in a lot of ways, changed my life, or at least changed the direction of my life. Uh, I went to ACU for my undergrad, so I was at ACU for five years. And if you're a student at ACU or Harding or OC or one of these schools, uh, you're usually required to go to chapel every day. And at ACU, as freshmen and sophomores, we were required to take a, a Bible course each semester those first two years. And then after that, you could choose one Bible course to be your elective uh, for an, an extra credit. So after my sophomore year, uh, I had taken a class with a, a teacher, a professor named Tony Ash. I really liked his style of teaching, and I noticed that he was teaching a course on the book of Acts, so I signed up to take it. And little did I know what God was going to do through me and in me through that semester of studying Acts. I will tell you, and I don't say this to brag or to be boastful in any way, but I made a perfect 100A in that class. And I'm not saying that because it was easy. I had friends who failed it, and I had a few friends that made a C, and they didn't like the class that much. I think the reason that I made an A, and a perfect A in the class, was because I was so captivated by what I was studying. We had five tests, and that was it. They weren't fill, they weren't fill in the blank. They weren't true or false, uh, multiple choice. It was short answer, so you either knew it or you didn't, and he gave you a few bonus questions each test. So when I knew the tests were coming up, for probably the first time in my life, I was excited about studying and preparing for it. And I don't know what that was. I think that's just the way the Word of God works. The Word of God is living and active and it's powerful. And so something about the book of Acts captivated and gripped me. And I hope that as you study through Acts, as, we, as I preach through it, as we study through it as a church, that God will work on you like God has worked on me and continues to work on me through these stories we're going to read. Um, as a church, our vision, and you've heard me say it over and over, is uh, our vision focus this year is Christ in you, Christ in others, and Christ in families. As we study through Acts, you're, you're going to find something for, for you as an individual, for you to grow as a follower of Jesus. You'll find something for your families, probably. But the main focus of this study of what we see in Acts is Christ in others. This is about disciple-making. This is about the mission of God. This is about reaching people. The book of Acts is other-focused. I almost titled this sermon series, Othering, because there's so much in there that gives us an example of what evangelism is about, what the mission of God is all about, what service is all about. We'll see the church, the early church, and how people would sell their possessions and give to the poor and sacrifice for each other. We learn a lot about what mission and service is all about. So we're going to challenge you along the way. We don't want to just be uh, spectators looking at the book of Acts. We want to actually participate in what we're reading and what's going on with the early church. And now here I am over 15 years later after I've taken the book of Acts at ACU, 
And I'm still reading these stories, still captivated by them, but at a different stage in life, and it's hitting me different. All right, so I'm really looking forward to studying this with you, and let's start with verses 1 through 3. Uh, Jason read this, uh, verses 1 through 8, in our scripture reading this morning, so we're going to read and kind of dissect, and I'll stop and, and talk about a few things along the way. So Acts chapter 1, verse 1 through 3. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, after his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Uh, in the academic world, if you were to study the Gospel of Luke or the book of Acts, often it's referred to as Luke-Acts. Because Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. We know that from church history, church tradition. It hasn't really been argued or disputed. And Luke also wrote the book of Acts. So this is just part two. This is the sequel. If you look at Luke chapter 1, Luke is writing to somebody that he refers to as most excellent Theophilus. And now this is part two. And he is writing again to Theophilus, and he's dropped the most excellent title. So maybe the relationship is a little more personal, or maybe it's just because it's part two. But he's writing again to this guy named Theophilus. As a church, you've heard us in the last year and a half ask you this question, who's your one? We want to challenge everybody, all of our members, to be disciple makers, to intentionally be involved in discipling at least one person in your life. So we've challenged you with that. We've talked about it here and there. And one of the examples we've shared is this example of Luke and Theophilus and their relationship. So if you were to ask Luke, who's your one, back then in the first century, he would have said Theophilus. Luke had a one and his name was Theophilus and Luke wanted Theophilus to know the truth of who Jesus is. He investigated it he studied it, he wrote out the whole story, and he felt like it was so important, he wanted to tell Theophilus part two, the continuation of the journey of the Holy Spirit and what continued to happen after Jesus had ascended to heaven. So as we go throughout the lesson this morning, I'm going to give you three action questions. These are questions that I want you to prayerfully consider in your own life. So as we read, as we study, these are things that you could put into action, things that you can apply to your own life. And here's action question number one. Who is someone you need to tell this week? One of the questions that went along, one of the statements that goes along with who's your one, is you kind of follow that up with tell your one. If you're discipling someone, if you're building a relationship with someone, eventually... You're going to have to tell them. You're going to have to verbalize your faith. So who is somebody, just like Luke is taking the time to tell Theophilus, who is somebody that you need to tell this week? Think about it. Prayerfully consider that. Who's in your life, work, school, whatever it may be that you can tell? And you may be thinking, what do I tell them? Do I, do I have to actually share the gospel with them? Do I tell my own testimony? Maybe. Or maybe you just tell somebody what you're learning. Maybe you, in your own Bible study, you pick a person in your life and you just in, work it in the conversation. You say, I studied this in the Bible the other day. What do you think about it? 
Or if you're having trouble with that, use the sermon as an example. Say, a preacher preached on the book of Acts. He said this, or Acts 1 says this. What do you think about it? And just find somebody in your life that you can tell, somebody that you can share this with, just like Luke shares it with Theophilus. Verse 4 and 5, continuing this introduction. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father. This, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 5 talks about baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. As we go through this study, there's going to be a lot to say about baptism. So here in a few weeks, I'm going to develop a whole sermon on, on baptism not just because we have a Church of Christ or we're Church of Christ background, and a lot of you know Acts 2.38. That was, you know, most kids grow up knowing John 3.16. Well, I grew up knowing Acts 2.38 about baptism. And, and all throughout the book of Acts, you're going to see baptism. You're going to see the Holy Spirit. And we're going to talk about that because it's very important. But my focus for right now is what's said in verse 4. It says, while Jesus was staying with them. Or if you have an NIV, it says, while Jesus was eating with them. Uh, It depends on how you translate it. It's a difficult phrase to translate. I think it literally means eating salt with. So when I start out to preach or to teach on a text, you know, usually I'm a month or two in advance. So back in the summer, I was studying through Acts, preparing for this sermon series. And one of the things that that I try to do to discipline myself is to just read it. Before I read commentaries and read what other people have to say about Acts or whatever it may be that I'm preaching on, I just read it and pray about it and jot down my initial thoughts and questions. And as I was reading through Acts chapter 1 through NIV, I wrote down, why does a guy who died, went all the way through death and out the other side and has resurrected, why does a guy like that need to eat? Does anybody else find that interesting? He was eating with them. We're talking about a resurrected Jesus who only comes back for about 40 days and appears here and there, and then he ascends to heaven. Why is he sitting down at a table eating with his disciples? So I pondered over this for a little bit, and then I thought, oh yeah, the way that Luke writes the Gospel of Luke, the table, sharing table fellowship, eating food, sharing a meal, is an important part of Jesus' ministry. Over two years ago, I did a sermon series called Jesus is Coming to Dinner. And we used the Gospel of Luke, and I went through and I showed you each week how Jesus sits down at the table, whether it's at a Pharisee's house, or tax collectors and sinners, or Mary and Martha, or Zacchaeus, or even after the resurrection, it's at a table where he reveals himself to his disciples. It's at the table, it's while eating a meal that Jesus has some really important conversations, healings, teachings. Jesus used table fellowship uh, throughout his ministry. And he's still doing it here in Acts chapter 1 in these 40 days before he ascends to heaven. So here's action question number two as we follow the text, as we try to imitate some of the things that we're seeing, is who is somebody you need to share table fellowship with this week? Just like we see in Jesus, all throughout the Gospel of Luke and here in Acts chapter 1, who is somebody that you need to share a meal with, share table fellowship with? Now, I want to stretch you a little bit. You probably eat with the same people on a regular basis. 
So I challenge you to reach out a little bit, to think about somebody maybe that's on your mind or on your heart that maybe you need to reach out to and invite them to lunch or invite somebody over for dinner. And just like we see modeled in Jesus' ministry, who is somebody that you need to have some important conversations with as you sit down at a table and share a meal? And maybe as you share a meal with somebody, that's when you share and you tell them about something you're learning or about something that God is teaching you through His Word. Maybe you share a meal and you share a story. So who's somebody you need to tell? Who's somebody you need to, to dine with this week? We see this in Acts chapter 1 already in the first five verses. And Luke is continuing this introduction in verse 6 and verse 7. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? If you're paying close attention, uh, this is not a very smart question by the disciples. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, he's been telling them all along what the kingdom of God is all about. And they're still thinking in earthly terms. They're still thinking about a throne in either Rome or a throne in Jerusalem. And Jesus has been telling them that's not what the kingdom is about. The kingdom of God is a happening. It's a movement. It's within you. It is the future, but it's also here and now. And so they're asking the same simple questions they've been asking all along. Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And if I was Jesus, I'd be like, come on, guys. You still don't get what I've been trying to teach you. But he's patient with them. He doesn't scold them. He just kind of glosses over it, and he says, it's not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. The when and where, that's not up to you. Don't worry about that. It's almost like Jesus can rest easy because he knows in just about a week they're going to get the Holy Spirit and things will become a lot more clear to them. And then we get to verse 8. And I'll tell you from the beginning before we read this that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is a key verse. It gives us an outline for the way that Luke writes the story. So Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus says this to his disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Short little verse. Maybe you've read it before, not thought much about it. Maybe you have paid attention to it. There is a professor from the Dallas Theological Seminary named Howard Hendricks, and he was well known for this assignment that he would give his students. When he would teach a course on the book of Acts, and they would get to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the assignment he would give his students is, go go home, leave class, and come back a week from now with 25 observations about Acts chapter 1, verse 8. So his students would complain, 25 different observations over one short little verse? And they would complain, they'd be upset about it, but then they would actually dive deep into Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and they realize it wasn't that hard to come up with 25 different observations because that's how deep and meaningful this verse is. And then the students would come back and share their 25 observations with the class and he'd say, okay, here's part two of the assignment. Take another week and go find 25 more observations of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. And so they would complain some more, and they'd come back the next week. They would share their new observations, and then he would stop the assignment at that point. So they were kind of relieved. Okay, now we can take a break from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But his point was he really wanted to drill into them how Luke uses this verse as his outline. He says, you will receive power from on high 
from the Holy Spirit. This gift that Jesus has promised them is coming, and we'll see in Acts chapter 2 where the Holy Spirit is poured out on all of them. My professor, Tony Ash, used to say, instead of calling it the Acts of the Apostles, it probably should be titled Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see as we study through Luke how important prayer and the Holy Spirit are to the mission of God. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses. A witness is someone who will bear testimony about what he or she has seen or experienced. It's where we get the, the English word martyr. The word witness in the book of Acts is used 29 times, either a noun or a verb. It's an important word. And what Jesus is saying is, you are going to witness to the entire world about what you've seen and heard. And then he gives them the geography. He says, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea. So Jerusalem is the city. It's where the temple is. It's where the first church started. And then Judea is the greater region. But then he says, then in Samaria, which is just north of them, which they considered their enemies. And then he goes on to say, and then to the ends of the earth. I've heard someone say about Acts chapter 1, verse 8, think globally, think ends of the earth, the entire earth, but act locally. So start in Jerusalem, but eventually the message, you're going to be witnesses all over the world. And we see this progression as Luke tells the story. In the first seven chapters, it's mainly focused on the church in Jerusalem. And then persecution hits in chapter 8, and then they spread the gospel to Samaria. And then in chapter 10, the Gentiles become followers of Jesus, and they're baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit, and then we get Paul, and he starts his missionary journeys in chapter 13. And then by the time we get to the end of the book of Acts, they're in Rome. So it starts locally, starts in Jerusalem, and then begins to spread to Samaria, to the Gentiles, to all these other regions and countries. And then they're all the way in Rome. And now here we are 2,000 years later, and there are followers of Jesus all over the world. And it starts with this commission from Jesus. And the commission is still the same for us today. There's still work to be done. So in light of thinking about these action questions that I've already given you from what we're reading, uh, and thinking increments of one, what if we started globally? I would think globally, but start with one locally. What if we had a heart for the entire world, a burden to teach people about Jesus all over the world, and what if we carry that with us, but we started right where we are? Started locally, and we just, just like Luke has Theophilus, we start with one locally. Think globally, start with one locally. And then we continue on in verse 9. These are kind of the, the wrapping up point of when Jesus ascends to heaven. When he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud took them out of their sight. Just like Peter, James, and John experienced on the mountain of transfiguration when the cloud came over Jesus and he was in the presence of God, now Jesus goes up to the clouds and he's, he's gone. The 40 days are over and Jesus has left them and he's promised them this gift that he's going to send them. In verse 10, while he was going, they were gazing up towards heaven and suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. And they said, men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking up towards heaven? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way you saw him go. 
This promise that these two angels give to the disciples gives the church its purpose. And it still gives us a purpose today. That just like Jesus ascended to heaven, the promise is, is, you know, Joe David talked about these promises that we receive during his communion talks this morning. The promise is that there's a day coming when Jesus will reappear, when Jesus will come back. So we live on purpose. We live with urgency. We live with a sense of mission because just as this promise is given in verse 11, it's the same for us today. Just as they saw Jesus leave, he will return. And then in verse 12 and 13, the disciples honoring the Sabbath day, they don't walk beyond what's allowed for a Sabbath day's journey, and they go into this upper room in this house in Jerusalem. In verse 13, the 11 apostles are mentioned, minus Judas, and that's the last time we're going to see the apostles listed. And so they're just sitting there in this upper room waiting. Jesus is gone. But he's promised them, if you just stay in the city, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, the Counselor, the Comforter is coming. I'm going to send to you the Holy Spirit. They have no idea what that's going to look like or what that's going to be like or how they'll even know. They just know they're told by their teacher, by their rabbi, to stay here and wait. So what do you do while you're waiting? They didn't go back home and watch TV and play video games. They didn't go back to their normal lives. They stayed together. And then we'll see in verse 14 what they were doing. All these were constantly devoting themselves to prayer, together with certain women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, as well as his brothers. And we'll read following that that there's about 120 of them. And what they do while they wait, while they wait from the promise, is they stay together, they continue to worship, they continue to spend time together, and they pray together. They're constantly praying. So if you were with us last Sunday morning, a good friend of mine, Chris Shelby, was here, and he preached and taught a class and did some training for some of us on disciple-making. And uh, he mentioned to you that he had been a missionary, his wife and his kids, in Kigali, Rwanda, for about seven years. And during early on in their stay there, uh, Jessica and I were invited to join them, so we also lived in Rwanda for about six months. And the very first day that we were on the ground in Rwanda, we were jet-lagged, we had been traveling for like 48 hours to get there, and they wanted us to not sleep all day and to kind of readjust, so they made us just immediately go into this um, meeting that they were having. We went into this village right outside of the main city of Kigali for what they called a prayer walk. They were anticipating reaching out to this village and making disciples. And the big push was a disciple-making movement has to start with a prayer movement. So we were just going to walk all over the village and just pray for the people that live there, pray for people to be receptive of the gospel And so right away, he split Jessica and I up with a a group of Rwandans that we didn't know, and they spoke broken English. We didn't know their language, and he said, now go out and pray with them. So it was kind of intimidating right away. And right before we walked off, Chris said, oh, by the way, this culture's a little different, and men will often hold hands with each other as they walk and talk. He said, it's not like a, they're not hitting on you. It's not a romantic thing. It's just a sign of acceptance and friendship. 
And I was like, what? And they said, okay, y'all go out. Your group's leaving. And then I didn't think much about it. I was jet lagged and tired. And we're walking. We're trying to talk to these Rwandans and get to know them a little bit. And we're praying as we walk. And then about 10 or 15 minutes into it, I felt a hand slip up under mine and grasp my hand. I looked over, and it was this guy that was walking with us. And every instinct in me was like, pull away. This is really weird. And I remember what Chris said, but I could also hear Jessica behind me giggling at me because she knew how uncomfortable I was. And so we walked along this village road, and I'm holding hands with this guy, and we're praying, and it's so uncomfortable. Uh, But it was important. It was something that needed to be done because prayer comes first. So we think about this group of people in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, and they're meeting together and they're constantly praying. We don't have details about how that looked. Were they sitting around holding hands? Were they on their knees? Were they standing up? Was somebody like Peter up front leading the prayer? Were they all praying? We don't really know. We just know that what marked them is that they were praying. They were constantly praying together. And most events in Luke-Acts, what follows arises out of prayer. We see that modeled in Jesus. Uh, After Jesus is baptized, Before he starts his ministry, he goes out for 40 days to pray and to fast. In Luke chapter 6, before Jesus chooses his 12 apostles, he spends the night praying. Before Jesus is crucified, he goes off by himself to pray. And now here in Acts chapter 1, they're waiting for the Holy Spirit. They don't exactly know what's going to happen. They're just living by Jesus' promise. And so what they do, they pray. They get together and they just spend time praying. And then what happens following their time of prayer is the Holy Spirit comes on them and the gospel begins to explode everywhere. And it starts with prayer. This church is a praying church. I was really encouraged long before I ever knew that I was going to move to Longview and be the preacher at the Pine Tree Church of Christ. That God was preparing me and God was preparing you. And the search committee informed me that this church spent 40 days in prayer anticipating who the new preacher was going to be. And those prayers were written down and shared with me. And that was confirmation to me that this is God leading this. This is not us and our agenda. This is us coming before God and saying, God, you show us the way. I I see a group of people go pray over here every Sunday morning before worship starts. This church is a praying church, and we want to continue to do that. We want to do what the apostles did, and they imitate what they saw in Jesus, and they dedicate themselves to praying. So here's action question number three. is who is somebody that you need to pray with this week? Now notice the way it's worded. Who is somebody you need to pray with? We need to pray for people. And not that that's easy. Hopefully we're doing that. Hopefully you're encouraged to pray for others. But I'm not saying just pray for someone. I'm saying who is somebody you need to pray with? Maybe it's your child. Maybe it's your one. Maybe it's somebody you work with or go to school with. What if you, without completely creeping somebody out, what if you just spent a few moments praying with somebody this week? Who would that be? What would that sound like? We don't know what the apostles were praying for. In Acts chapter 4, we get a glimpse of the church's prayer. We know that Jesus taught his disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer. 
in Luke chapter 11. Uh, We know that they would pray the Shema from Deuteronomy 6 every day. We know that they would recite the Psalms in their prayer life. Maybe their prayer sounded something like Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, which we've challenged you as a church to memorize. We spent a lot of time on this year. We don't know exactly what they're praying for, but we know that they were praying together and praying to be obedient to God's will. So who is somebody you need to pray with this week? I titled this lesson, Eat, Pray, Tell Someone. Apparently there's a book or a movie out there somewhere long ago called Eat, Pray, Love, a book I will never read, a movie I will never see, but I did kind of borrow that concept for the title of this lesson. Eat, Pray, Tell Some More. You read through those first 14 verses, and not just for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of obedience and action, and how do we apply it to our lives. And just like Luke is going to tell the story to Theophilus, who is someone that you need to share with, someone that you need to tell? Just like Jesus used the table and sitting around and eating food is a huge part of his ministry. Who is somebody that you need to share table fellowship with and eat with this week? And just like the apostles spent so much time constantly praying with each other, praying together, who is somebody you need to pray with this week? Tell somebody, share a meal with somebody, pray with somebody. I challenge you to do that over the next week. And just step out of your comfort zone and see how God will work through that. As together as a church, we try to live out this vision and this mission that God has laid upon our hearts. And this morning, you may be in the position that you need to be prayed with or prayed for. Maybe this morning, you know, you heard me mention baptism a few minutes ago, and maybe that's something that you've been thinking about, or you know somebody that's been thinking about it. I'm not sure where you're at this morning, but I want to remind you that every Sunday morning we set aside this time, as we call it our invitation song, and we have shepherds that will be around the room in the back. One will be up front with me. If you need prayers, if you need to respond in any way, please take this time to do it. I want to invite you to stand back up.